If you're gay, then you're gay. Don't pretend that you're straight. You could be who you are any day of the week. You are unlike the others, so strong and unique. We're all with you. If you're straight, well, that's great. You can help procreate and make gay little babies for the whole human race. Make a world we can live in where the one who you love's not an issue. Cause we're all somewhere in the middle. We're all just looking for love to change the world. Ah. And we're all here in it together. Thanks for tuning in, and welcome to the January 12th edition of I Am Are You? The nation's longest-running lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender radio news magazine. Out front and out loud since 1974, I'm Chris Ann Eastwood. I'm Michelle Marie Gilkison. And I'm Steve Pride. Happy Monday, everyone. Happy Monday. You know, this is Kiss a Ginger Day. It is. And we have Ian McKinnon in there helping Mr. Winslow Jones direct. He is. You know, Ginger, I mean, did that turn? What are they doing through that glass? Well, mercy, I don't know. Thank goodness it's radio. I don't think that's what they meant by Kiss a Ginger, Renzo. That came from South Park calling red hairs gingers, though. People with red hair. I believe so. So, kiss one. Michelle Marie? What we got going on tonight, girl? Steve Rothhouse, LGBT issues reporter at the Miami Herald, is going to be with us live on the phone from the Sunshine State. I talked to Heron Greensmith of the Movement Advancement Project about their report on issues facing bisexual Americans. I get the 411 on the I'm from Driftwood LGBT story archive from its creator Nathan Mansky in New York City. And in studio tonight live, it's going to be director, producer, and trans activist Andrea James. But first, the national and international news from our friends at This Way Out. I'm Michelle Marie Gilkison. And I'm Michael LeBeau. With News Wrap, a summary of some of the news in or affecting LGBT communities around the world for the week ending January 10th, 2015. At least four people were injured on January 4th in the southern Russian city of Tolyoti when thugs invaded the popular gay night spot Phantom and assaulted several patrons. One clubgoer was hospitalized with what were said to be critical injuries. The club's management claims that their venue is not a gay bar and denied that the attack was homophobic, calling it an ordinary bar fight. Gay people create a comfortable ghetto for themselves in clubs, one that seems safe to them, said local activist Konstantin Golava. There's nothing wrong with going out and having fun, but it's also necessary to defend oneself and other LGBTQ people and not grumble that activists are embracing and provoking, he said. When gay Russians think their rights are not being violated, even after attacks like this, then only more of this darkness will continue. Violent attacks against LGBT people, or anyone perceived to be, have increased dramatically in Russia since the enactment in 2013 of a bill to outlaw so-called gay propaganda. It criminalizes disseminating any positive information about non-traditional sexual relationships to minors. An 85-page report issued by the U.S.-based Human Rights Watch in late December detailed the growth in the number of homophobic attacks in the country since the so-called no-promo-homo law took effect. Of the 78 victims the Global Rights Group interviewed, 44 reported the attacks to the police, but the others didn't because they know that investigations are unlikely. 
Human Rights Watch Russian researcher Tanya Cooper explained why the report is called License to Harm. Russian authorities virtually do nothing to stop the violence, to prosecute it, and to prevent it from happening further. As a result, scores of Russian LGBT people are fleeing the country right now. Russian authorities continued their official demonization of LGBT people this week by specifically targeting transgender individuals. New regulations approved by Prime Minister Dmitry Medvedev, President Vladimir Putin's right-hand man, deny driver's licenses to people deemed to be mentally ill, specifically naming gender identity disorder, because such people are allegedly more likely to be involved in serious automobile accidents. The Association of Russian Lawyers for Human Rights called the edict discriminatory and vowed to fight for a review at the Russian Constitutional Court. But the repeal by the Vietnamese government of a ban on same-gender wedding ceremonies took effect on New Year's Day. It abolished regulations that prohibit marriage between people of the same sex. Participants involved in same-gender weddings were fined until that statute was abolished in 2013. The government still won't legally recognize same-gender marriages, however. Several observers believe that the symbolic changes are designed to promote Vietnam's image as a tolerant and accepting country and to boost tourism, especially from LGBT travelers. Some also see the latest change as a welcome to the new U.S. ambassador to Vietnam, Ted Osius, who arrived there with his husband Clayton Bond and their young son in December, becoming the first out U.S. ambassador to an Asian country. The U.S. Supreme Court on January 9th failed to announce a decision to hear one or more marriage equality cases in its current term. The most likely candidates would be challenges to the 6th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals which broke with four other federal appeals courts last year by upholding bans on civil marriage for lesbian and gay couples in Kentucky, Michigan, Ohio, and Tennessee. The justices could decide to take those cases or others at subsequent conferences later this month. The high court could also decide to hear a challenge to a district court ruling that upheld the ban in Louisiana. The case is currently at the Fifth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals in New Orleans, But the LGBT advocacy group Lambda Legal has petitioned the Supreme Court to bypass any action there and take the case directly. A three-judge panel of the Fifth Circuit heard oral arguments on the same day on the Louisiana case and appeals by officials in Mississippi and Texas of lower court rulings striking down their bans. Most observers predict a two-to-one Fifth Circuit ruling supporting marriage equality in all three states. The losing parties could still appeal to the Supreme Court. Meanwhile, gay and lesbian couples began exchanging vows in Florida's Miami-Dade County on January 5th after a circuit court judge lifted her stay of a ruling overturning that state's ban. Same-gender couples in the rest of the Sunshine State began tying the knot the following day when the stay by U.S. District Court Judge Robert Hinkle of his ruling overturning the ban expired. More than 1,400 lesbian and gay couples got licenses in the first two days of marriage equality in Florida. Same-gender couples can now legally marry in 36 U.S. states and the District of Columbia. A court in Italy has recognized a child as having been born to a same-gender couple for the first time in the country's history. The child was conceived by artificial insemination and born in Barcelona in 2011 to a Spanish and Italian lesbian couple. The ruling gives the child Italian citizenship and the right to live in Italy with the mother, who is now divorced from her Spanish ex-wife. The decision was apparently issued in October, but only made public on January 7th. No names were included with the announcement. A court in Spain, where marriage equality is the law of the land, awarded joint custody to both women. Italy doesn't recognize the marriages or civil partnerships of same-gender couples. 
but some courts and town councils have recently started to recognize the civil marriages of same-gender couples legally performed abroad. And finally, a Dublin priest this week called on his congregation to vote in favor of opening civil marriage to same-gender couples in a May referendum in Ireland, saying, I'm gay myself. Father Martin Dolan has been a priest at the Church of St. Nicholas of Myra in Dublin's city center for 15 years and is the only priest in the parish. He came out to his congregation at the Saturday night mass and was greeted by a standing ovation. While the Roman Catholic Church hierarchy in Ireland has been outspoken in its opposition to marriage equality, the Archdiocese of Dublin has thus far declined comment about Dolan's announcement. Liz O'Connor, a community youth worker, spoke for many of the parishioners when she told the Irish son that there would be a great uproar if the church takes punitive action against the priest. We are all very proud of Father Martin, she said. Because he has admitted that he is gay doesn't change the person that he was before he said it. That's News Wrap for the week ending January 10th, 2015. Produced by Steve Pride, written by Greg Gordon, and recorded at the studios of KPFK Los Angeles. Follow the news in your area and around the world. An informed community is a strong community. News Wrap from This Way Out is brought to you by you. Help keep us on the air and in your ears at thiswayout.org, where you can also read the text of this newscast. For This Way Out, I'm Michael LeBeau. And I'm Michelle Marie Gilkison. You can hear all 30 minutes of the latest This Way Out, including more news wrap, on Stitcher Radio On Demand, on iTunes, or at thiswayout.org. Also on the program this week, queer Golden Globe wins for Transparent and the Normal Heart. Lesbian activists in Turkey and Ghana discuss their challenging lives. And Eurovision Song Contest winner Conchita Wurst sings for the heroes. You know, we mentioned in the news, there's a lot of change afoot in Florida, my home state. Yes, there is. And you know, when I was growing up, there, actually the slogan, believe it or not, was the rules are different here. <sighs> and they've proven that so many times over the years. So to get the real deal, I reached out to Steve Rothhouse, who is the LGBT issues reporter at the Miami Herald, Steve, are you on the line? I am, Steve. Oh, good to hear your voice. Now, I am, like, stunned. You've been doing this for years. But the fact that the Miami Herald has an LGBT issues reporter, and I don't think we have that here in L.A. I've been doing this now at the Miami Herald since 1997. Good gosh. Summer of 97, yes. A lot of change. I've had other jobs, too. Yes, I've had other jobs as well, but, you know, primarily covering LGBT since then. Well, we were on the air last Monday. Take us back a week. What happened there, Guy? Well, I mean, last Monday, about 11 a.m. in Miami-Dade <sighs> County, Miami-Dade Circuit Judge Sarah Zabel, she lifted a stay that she had imposed last summer, last July. She lifted the stay, and she actually married two plaintiffs in a gay marriage case. The uh, case had been filed last year by Equality Florida Institute on behalf of six couples and the National Center for Lesbian Rights. And this was one of about five different cases that underway in in Dade County this year in in South Florida, Miami-Dade County, Monroe County, which is Key West, is located, Broward County, where Fort Lauderdale is in West Palm Beach, and also there was a federal case filed in Tallahassee, the state capital. Well, let's put this in perspective, because Florida, we all know about the adoption issues. We know about all the Republican issues. But recently, you have even more issues with your Attorney General, Pam Bondi, being quite anti-gay. Talk about Pam. Well, Attorney General Pam Bondi, she was elected four years ago, and she was reelected in November. 
you know, she, she serves independently uh, of the governor. Governor Rick Scott was also reelected. But she uh, began to oppose any, any changes in Florida law, uh, I guess, about a year, year and a half ago. Uh, back in 2008, Florida passed a constitutional ban against same-sex marriage. And basically, we lived with that all through, I guess, around 2010 is when they lifted the adoption ban. So two years after that. And that was also, uh, you know, settled in the courts. Um, but basically, um, you know, the five lawsuits, including the federal lawsuit, they were all in progress. And within about five weeks last summer, there were five consecutive rulings against the marriage ban, calling it unconstitutional. Four of the um, four of the rulings came in in state court, so they were working its way through the state court system. But the fifth ruling happened August twenty first, and that was in the federal court, and what? that went to the eleventh circuit court of appeals. Well, hi, Steve. This is Chris Ann Eastwood here from IMRU. So now you can legally be married in Florida, correct? As That's a gay correct. person, you've got absolutely, and and. And that, uh, the case actually was a recognition case with, with one couple wanting to marry. It was one right to marry case combined with, uh, you know, about ten, uh, nine or ten recognition cases. Uh, but now that it is recognized, and it can happen in every county in Florida, you have two pretty sure. prominent folks there in Florida who are considering a run for president in 2016, Marco Rubio and Jeb Bush, your former governor and your mm-hmm. current senator. Have they made public right. statements on this, and what are they? Well, Marco Rubio, uh, last week after the uh, law was, was uh, ended and people began to marry, he said that he encouraged uh, Pam Bondi to continue to fight, you know, to preserve the constitutional marriage ban. I mean, he was pretty unequivocal about that. He, he said that he's against uh, same-sex marriage, and he, you know, really was hoping that Pam Bondi would continue to appeal the case. How about, uh, the how about case Jeb Bush? Well, Jeb Bush was, uh, he was a little less definite about his, you know, about his opinions on gay marriage. He said that basically he thought the marriage was still between a man and a woman, but he was less apt to, to continue the appeals and basically said, okay, this is, this is done and let's, let's kind of move on. Well, the Fifth Circuit has just heard arguments, and that includes Texas and Louisiana, so we're finally digging in more to the South. What are your predictions? Well, I mean, the fact is that there are only 14 states left that don't have same-sex marriage legalized. And with these cases that are, you know, presumed to be heard by the U.S. Supreme Court, the Michigan case, you know, the, in, the, in the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, the, the, probably the, the country will, will have a resolution uh, in, in June, we would hope, uh, two years after Windsor. And, and basically that will uh, allow the U.S. Supreme Court to decide the, the appeals in the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeal, and then, you know, bring down a ruling that will end the marriage ban throughout the rest of the United States. I mean, keep in mind that Florida has never reached the appeals process itself. I mean, the cases were filed in the appeals court, but never heard. What happened uh, a couple of weeks ago was that the federal judge had imposed a stay that, you know, was set to expire on January 5th. And so... When the stay was coming close to expiration, Pam Bondi, she appealed first to the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals to a three-member panel asking them to, you know, extend the stay. They said no. Then she took it to Clarence Thomas, who then referred it to the full U.S. Supreme Court, 
they voted 7-2 to two not to extend the stay. So basically, that's where we're at right now. So these cases could go through the appeals process, but we think that they won't. Because with the U.S. Supreme Court ready to deal with this issue, uh, there seems to be little sense to go ahead and, and try other cases in other courts. Thank you so much. The happy days in Florida, Steve. Yeah, as a Floridian, well, I am you. so happy about this. Thank you, Steve Rothhouse. You know, Steve's well, reporting you, Steve. can be found at miamiherald.com slash gay. Independent think tank, the Movement Advancement Project, provides research that helps speed equality for LGBT people. So I sat down with Heron Greensmith to discuss the first in a series of reports. It's called Understanding Issues Facing Bisexual Americans. My name is Heron Greensmith, and I work at the Movement Advancement Project. I lead our LGBT movement analyses. In that capacity, I drafted this report. What is MAP's overall mission? Our overall mission is to build capacity for the LGBT movement with the goal of speeding equality for LGBT folks. And we do that with three buckets of work. For this report, Understanding Issues Facing Bisexual Americans, you partnered with two other bifocused organizations. And I'm wondering if you could talk about how that coalition came about. Yeah, Binet USA and the Bisexual Resource Center are two of the national organizations who represent bisexual folks in the United States, and it was a natural partnership. Can you explain, for those of our listeners who aren't quite sure, what bi-invisibility or bi-erasure is? We know that bisexual people face pervasive stereotypes and myths around bisexuality. For example, when someone comes out as bisexual, it can be assumed that they are confused about or hiding their real sexual orientation. And we call these stereotypes and myths discrimination or even erasure. And that means when people assume or claim that a bi person is straight or gay, depending on the gender of their current partner, or it can happen when someone refers to the LGBT or gay community and doesn't mean to include bi people. We think that collecting accurate data on the LGBT movement is crucial, and that is super clear When we look at the disparities facing bisexual people, it's clear that if we didn't parse the data as accurately among lesbian women, gay men, and bisexuals, that we wouldn't be able to articulate these deep disparities. Okay, so how is bisexuality defined in the report? We define bisexuality as people who have the capacity for emotional, romantic, and or physical attraction to more than one sex or gender. Walk us through the recommended bi-inclusive terminology versus those terms that should be avoided. We recommend using the term bisexual or bi with the example of saying she's bi or he's bisexual or bi men and women. And we encourage folks always to use the term that someone identifies with. We encourage using lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender if needed for clarity. And we discourage using LGBT for the first time, especially when talking with folks who are not yet supporters or aren't as familiar with the movement as a lot of us are. And then finally, we encourage saying openly bisexual or openly bi with the example, I'm openly bi. And we want to avoid saying things like admitted or claimed to be bi which add to the myths and the stereotypes surrounding bisexuality. What was the overall methodology that you guys used for the research and then organization of the report? The work that we do at Movement Advancement Project focuses on aggregating existing data. 
So all of this data has been gleaned through research um, with the reports that we cite at the end of our own report. Um, and we really just aggregated all the data that has been collected on bisexual people and looked at the body of work as a whole and realized how deep these disparities are for bi people. And it came to light that there's two essentially huge buckets of disparities, economic and health. And so we divided economic disparities into poverty and employment and health disparities into violence and, and, and mental and physical health. I really love that the report includes these anecdotes from bisexuals, uh, along with the quote unquote hard numbers. Why was that decision made to include them? Why is that important? We include folks' stories in a lot of our MAP reports because we think it's important to highlight the humanity behind the statistics here. So in Faith's story, we're able to highlight what it really means to be a bi woman at work and experience constant jokes, sexual innuendo because of her sexual orientation. What is the percentage of bisexuals according to the report? So how big is that segment? of the whole LGBT community? We look at a lot of data on numbers of LGBT folks, but consistently among lesbian, gay, and bisexual folks, bisexuals represent slightly more than half of the entire lesbian, gay, and bisexual population. Gary Gates's research from the Williams Institute shows that bisexual people as a whole make up approximately 52% of the lesbian, gay, and bi community. Okay. And then going back to the disparities, you mentioned the different poverty, employment, violence, and health, those different categories. Could you dig into those a little bit? Like what were the key disparities that you found in those categories? Sure. I'd love to talk a little bit about violence because this category of disparity was not surprising to me, but very shocking, the depth of the inequality. Approximately 46% of bi women have experienced rape and this compares to 13% of lesbian women and 17% of straight women. Similarly, 61% of bi women have experienced rape, physical violence, or stalking by an intimate partner. And this compares to 43% of lesbian and 35% of straight women. These statistics just really highlight that bisexual identity or behavior by itself endangers people more deeply than other sexual orientations. Wow, <laughs> that is quite a contrast there. What I love about this report is besides just having these findings and leaving it at that, you guys have recommendations that we can all implement in our daily lives and in our larger social justice projects. Could you um, tell us some of those recommendations? Sure, we have three recommendations here. We recommend cultural competence around by issues. So for example, by specific trainings for staff, um, bicultural competence for researchers and therapists and people who work with bisexual people. Then we recommend bi-visibility, specifically for LGBT organizations, for example, to have bi-specific services, bi-specific community services. And then finally, we recommend precise data collection, which we highlighted earlier, to show the disparities between lesbian, gay, and bisexual people. And data collection is also important because it distinguishes between sexual orientation and gender identity. And we need to make sure we're not conflating those two. 
Was the report distributed in a specific way to LGBT and other human rights organizations? We did a broad media push, and we're going to be printing copies of the report and sharing them both with our partners and sharing it at the Creating Change Conference in January in Denver. And we're hoping that folks know us at MAP and the Bioresource Center and Binet USA as a source for documents like this and that they'll find it that way as well. Great. And for our listeners, where can they find the online report to download? They can find it at www.lgbtmap.org. Perfect. So what is MAP working on next in terms of bisexuality or just the larger LGBT community? So we're going to be working on two companion reports to this report, the Understanding Issues series. We're going to be releasing a guide to understanding issues facing LGBT Americans later this year. And then early next year, we're going to be releasing a guide to understanding issues facing transgender Americans. And all three can be found at our website, lgbtmap.org. Is there anything else that you want to share that we didn't touch on yet? No, I would just encourage everyone to head over to our website to check out all the great work that we're doing. That's lgbtmap.org. And to visit our partners, Binet USA and the Bioresource Center, who are both really great organizations doing a ton of great work for bisexual people. Thank you so much. So since my conversation with Heron, they have published that second report, Understanding Issues Facing LGBT Americans. Check it out on their website and stay tuned for more of their great work. I was surprised by these statistics, the percentage of bisexuals in our group. Yep. The invisibility challenge is very real. And it's also mm. very fluid. You know, I, I've, I've interviewed the, the late Dr. Fritz Klein in his bisexuality scale. And like I believe gender is fluid and sexuality is fluid. I mean... It's such a fluid world that uh, hopefully we'll release ourselves from the binary in our lifetime. Still to come, Nathan Mansky talks about his LGBT story archive, I'm from Driftwood. And in studio live tonight, writer, director, producer, trans activist Andrea James is here. Yeah. We'll be right back. Simply Divine, coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. Born with the name Harris Glenn Milstead in 1945, he would later be known as Divine. That name came from aspiring filmmaker John Waters, who borrowed the name from a character in the novel Our Lady of the Flowers, a controversial book about homosexuals. That name stuck. Divine later said, That's what everybody calls me now, even my close friends. Not many of them call me Glenn at all anymore, which I don't mind. Did you ever look it up in the dictionary? I won't even go into it. It's unbelievable. Many remember Divine's role in Pink Flamingos, which Waters describes as an exercise in poor taste. Most don't know about her first film, Roman Candles. In this film, Divine is in drag playing the part of a smoking nun. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia, and read by volunteers like me, Roby Martin. Hello, I'm Nathan Mansky, the founder of I'm From Driftwood, and you are listening to IMRU Radio Magazine on KPFK-FM, 98.7 Los Angeles, 98.7 Santa Barbara, 99.5 Ridgecrest, China Lake, 93.7 San Diego, or streaming online at kpfk.org. Wow. 
Welcome back. I'm Steve Pride. You're listening to IMRU Radio. I'm Chris Ann Eastwood. And I'm Michelle Marie Gilkison, and the time is now 7.29. On March 24, 2009, a then 30-year-old named Nathan Mansky launched a website that he hoped would uplift the growing number of LGBT teens who met and network online. Many who struggle without allies or resources. And he named it, I'm from Driftwood. Maya Angelou once said, There is no greater agony than bearing an untold story inside you. Luckily, a friend of mine in New York City has made it his mission to preserve and share your story. My name is Nathan Maskey, and I'm the founder and executive director of I'm From Driftwood, the LGBTQ story archive. It's an online archive of first-person LGBTQ stories from all different people, all different places, all different cultures, communities, and backgrounds. And the purpose of all the stories in the archive is to help queer people, particularly in small towns, feel not so alone. And I say particularly because isolation is not exclusive to geography. It's more of a personal feeling. And you can feel isolated and alone as a gay person here in midtown Manhattan. You know, it doesn't have to be Driftwood, Texas, but uh, the idea is that if you feel alone in whatever you're going through, wherever you are or whoever you are, that you're not. You're not alone. And there's a great big community out there who has experienced a lot of similar situations and stories that you're going through. So that's it in a nutshell. Why is it called I'm from Driftwood? I saw the film Milk in 2008 when it first came out. The day after seeing it, I was thinking about a popular photograph of Harvey Milk. He's in the San Francisco Pride March, and he's holding this sign that says, I'm from Woodmere, New York. And I was thinking of that photograph and thinking, like, why are you saying you're from Woodmere, New York, where it is a town that most people have never even heard of? You know, it's this town on Long Island. And everyone associates him with San Francisco. You know, the first openly gay elected official in San Francisco, Harvey Milk is synonymous with San Francisco. What that meant to me is that he, like so many other people, aren't from these big gay meccas. They're not from New York City. They're not from San Francisco. They're from these towns. And myself, I live in New York, but I'm not from here. I'm from Driftwood, which is a very small town in Texas. So I felt like it was a passing of the baton. Harvey Milk and that simple statement saying he's from Woodmere, New York, made me think of this idea that we're from everywhere and we are everyone. And here I am in New York City, but I'm from Driftwood. And all the storytellers start their story by saying where they're from, just to continue furthering that idea that you're not alone. Tell me about the collection. When we first started out, it was only written stories. And I had very simple guidelines. And basically, it was, it has to be a story. It can't be a diary entry about your thoughts on marriage equality. It has to be something that happened to you. It has to have a story arc, and it has to be a true story from yourself involving you being LGBT. And the only times that I ever didn't post an entry was if it wasn't a story. And I'd email the author back and explain to them, just, can you resubmit? But you mentioned this. Can you actually tell me how that affected your life personally? So I just make sure that people actually submitted real stories. And it was soon after I launched that one of my really good friends, now one of my best friends, and he's on our board of directors, Marquise, he had the idea of doing a video story. And he basically said, why don't we sit down with people, they tell you their story, and I'll edit it into a three to five minute video story. 
and we did two in one weekend, and it just turned out great. And now it's actually become the main focus of the site. So every Wednesday, we post a new video story. So it's become a weekly video story program. And we still get written stories, but they're not as prominently featured on the site just because people have really attached themselves to the video stories. Where do you gather the stories? Once we started doing video stories, we were collecting stories mostly from people who are living here in New York City. And then Marquise lives in Philadelphia, so I would travel there. It's a two-hour bus ride, easy commute, and get some stories from Philly. What's great about New York and Philly are people move to New York and Philly a lot from other places. So we were still capturing stories from people from all over, but consistently they all made the decision to move to a big city. And I wanted to get stories from people who maybe didn't make that decision. So that's where the idea of the 50-state story tour came from. I wanted to go out to these other towns and cities outside of New York or the Northeast and get stories from LGBTQ people in Idaho and Kansas and, of course, Texas and all these other towns and cities. Or even if it's in New York, what about another city or town in New York? And so that was late 2010, early 2011 that we did that. So it took four months. We drove to 48 states and flew to Hawaii and Alaska, but it was going to each town. And and even the way we get stories here, we work with different organizations. So we'll call or email PFLAG or 40 to None, which is part of Cindy Lauper's True Colors Fund. So we work with other organizations and basically say, hey, look, we're a story archive. We want to collect stories. So do you have any storyteller from your organization or somebody that you helped doing the work that you do that we can get their story? And then we can direct people to you who might need your services. So using 40 to None as an example, they help homeless LGBT youth. And they found us a storyteller. We got their story and then had their logo on at the end with a link to them. So if anyone watches this story, they kind of pick up where the story leaves off. What's the hardest part of the project? One thing that I hate the most of all the things that I ever hear that I've done with I'm From Driftwood is when people tell me they don't have a story. I'll nearly pull my hair out. I'm just like, everyone has a story. Whether your story is boring, that's the most common. Oh, my story is boring. It's like, no, it's not. It might be boring to you, but if you're coming out with just all roses and wonderful and you just gated right on through it and your parents were accepting, that's actually really inspiring for people to know that there's a bright future coming for us. And then the opposite, but kind of in the same vein, is if somebody says their story is too negative and they want to share something happy, but sharing the negative stories are equally, if not more important than the positive stories, because it shows that either a struggle still exists or it shows how bad it was, but how much better it's gotten. And also someone might be going through that same story. What if somebody shares a story that says, oh, I wasted my whole life and I came out at 80. What if someone is 79 and they're still in the closet? What if they could get one year back that the other person didn't? What if they're 12 years old and they hear that and they're like, oh, I shouldn't waste my life. Sharing our stories is the most powerful tool that not just the LGBT community could do, but anyone can do. And everyone has that power to share their story and make a difference in people's lives by sharing it. Why is this the right time for I'm from Driftwood? Forever, for the rest of history, there will never be a bigger gap between the experiences of the elders and the youth. Because people who are in their 60s, 70s, 80s, it was a completely different world for them. And right now we have people who are in their 70s and 80s who were arrested for dancing with people of the same gender. At the same time, at this moment in time, we have people who are coming out as transgender at four years old. It's nearly impossible to imagine 
that difference and that the gap between the differences will never be wider. And I really want to capture that like a snapshot. You're even planning a new project focusing on this gap. How will that work? The way I want to do that is by having younger listeners listen to the older storytellers. And that's mutually beneficial because the younger generation gets to listen to these wise men as it would have been in the past. And also the older people get it finally for once, especially they of all people have lived such closeted lives or more so than the rest of us. And they get to understand the value of their own story and pass their story on and and have that feeling of no matter what their life was like, that their story now matters. And the younger LGBT people truly do value their stories and their lives. How can a listener share their story? Just go to ifromdriftwood.com, click share your story, and then click share your video story and fill out the form. And we have somebody in Los Angeles who's a fantastic videographer and editor, and he will come to you and get your story. This has been a conversation with Nathan Mansky, founder of I'm From Driftwood. This is Steve Pride. Thanks for listening. All of these lines across my face Tell you the story of who I am So many stories of where I've been And now I got to where I am But these stories don't mean anything When you've got no Tell them to it's true. I was made for you. Nathan Mansky, the I'm from Driftwood Project. That was a fun, fun interview for me. And uh, incredibly, I think the thing that was most poignant for me is the idea of bringing youth and our elders together because he's absolutely right. They have no idea of many, because our history is not told, you know, constantly in film and television. I mean, we just, we, our, only our present is really told. That they have no, they have no idea what, what people went through and the work that our elders have done. And uh, hugely important. You know, I was taking some film classes last year and there was a guy talking about a film that I thought, oh, yeah, with Tony Perkins. And he was like, no, no. You mean there was one before Gus Van Sant did it? Psycho. Oh, really? So, I mean, the points of reference are so different. Yes. That we need to do that. And speaking of points of reference, one of my heroes is in the studio with us right now. Andrea James is a writer, a film director, and producer. She's a trans activist. She is so many things to so many people, and we are so fortunate and blessed to have her in studio with us right now. Hello, Andrea James. Well, thank you for having me back. It's always so much fun to hang out with you guys. I think it was almost a year. It felt like yeah. it was like last month, and I looked it up like, no. I think it was April of last April. year. Yeah, a lot has happened since then. It was such an exciting year for trans people. You you were incredibly busy last year. Tell, tell us what you had going on last year. Uh, well, last year was kind of busy. Uh, I had two films that came out. Uh, one is a vegan drama called Living Things, mm. and uh, that was very exciting. It's uh, currently available video on demand. Is that the genre now? Uh, well, it was endorsed by PETA, and it was a project that some friends of mine were doing, and we shot it in five days, and it ended up being pretty interesting. A vegan drama. What, yes. What, what, what makes so it? the premise is uh, a woman is having her father-in-law over for dinner, and her husband is late, 
And the, the father-in-law is a stereotypical sort of, you know, blue-collar, meat-eating, you know, conservative person. And she's this sort of, you know, yoga-loving, vegan, mm-hmm. you know. And it's a drama because it sounds kind of funny. Well, it it starts off kind of funny, but then it gets very intense very quickly. Mm-hmm. And they sort of hash out both sides of the issue. But vegan hash. <laughs> yes, yeah. vegan hash. And you had that wonderful documentary with Alec Mappa. Yeah, and so the other film was Alec Mappa, Baby Daddy, which uh, we filmed uh, about two years ago. And we had our festival circuit last uh, year, starting at the beautiful Egyptian theater. We had our premiere there. It was really wonderful. Mm. And Alec got a Lifetime Achievement Award, which was well-deserved. It seems early. This Lifetime Achievement, I watched George Clooney get one last night at the Golden Globes. Don't you think you need to be at least 70 to get a Lifetime Achievement Award? Well, you know, I think in our community... Because Alec does not admit to being 70. (laughs) Yeah, well, I think, you know, he's done enough work already for a lifetime. Okay. He's, he's quite the hard worker. Okay. And uh, we went on a festival circuit with that film this year, and we had really great response. And uh, so we're just uh, figuring out where it's going to live so that everybody else can see it now. It's uh, probably going to be out later this year. Well, last night was an amazing night at the Golden Globes for trans visibility. Yeah, yeah. It's um, it's. Last year really was quite a remarkable year in terms of really getting this into the public conscious, uh, you know, in a way that uh, we have been trying to do for about 50 years. You know, this really goes back to the concerted effort started in the late 50s, early 60s um, after Christine Jorgensen. Um, after all the excitement wore down, she tried to get married, and her marriage license was denied. And that was really when we started to realize, as a community, that we needed to need a little bit more up. Yeah. than just getting being able to get you know medical uh, adjustments and so yeah, forth. Yeah, and just being out in the newspaper doesn't necessarily bring change. It brings mm-hmm. awareness, but the, you know you have to have a group of people who are dedicated to making change. Well, last night on the Golden Globe Awards, the uh, Hollywood Foreign Press awarded the Amazon series Transparent, Amazon uh, available only through Amazon, awarded them Best Comedy, and it starred Jeffrey Tambor, uh, Best Actor. Yeah, and that was a huge, huge win. Yeah, it was really lovely. And uh, given what happened last year with uh, Jared Leto's speech, it was so nice to see two very respectful speeches given, um, you know, uh, Jill's, Jill's was dedicated to Leela Alcorn, the trans uh, girl who committed suicide terrible, right at the end of the terrible year. Terrible story. Um, and uh, Jeffrey Tambor dedicated his uh, award to our community. And I think that that was both. Both of those speeches were really lovely. Were you involved with this at all, or were you consulted at all? Because you you are a trans activist, and and you know, for better for you, you're kind of a you, you tend to be on the uh, you know, give a lot of talk, and I'm babbling now, but you mm. but you do a lot. You're outspoken. Outspoken. Tra- you're also trans the issues. voice of reason quite often because there are lots of flame wars and ups and downs. But you're pretty steady out there. Well, I you know I'm burnt to a charcoal briquette at this point after, you know, starting on Usenet and getting flame wars there. So, uh, you know, I I know all about that. But to get to your point about uh, consulting, I was not involved in the project. Mm -hmm. I had the pleasure of going to the premiere. But, um, you know, I sort of feel like when we worked on Transamerica in 2005, that 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 was pretty groundbreaking at the time. And there are a lot of things I really like about Transparent, but it's not it's not a project that I'm personally um, planning to be involved in. Do you have a critique of it? Is there something that they're not getting right or 
Well, you know, I wrote a piece uh, where I, I talked about how it's an imperfect step forward, that mm-hmm. there's so many great things about it, and they're doing so many things right. But ultimately, you know, I think we've reached the point where we need to have trans people playing trans roles. And, um, you know, I think Jeffrey Tambor did great, and I completely understand why he had to be in that. That's the only reason that everybody's watching it. And that's always the difficulty with casting controversies in Hollywood. Sure. Sure. You know, uh, my friend uh, Ron Nicewanner, who wrote Philadelphia, said there was a similar argument about Tom Hanks. Yes, there was. I remember that very well. And the reason so many people were affected by that film was because Tom Hanks was in it. And you have to, regardless of of, of whatever the subject matter is, you have to open the film. You have to open the series. You have to get people watching it or else no one's going to hear. Yeah. And so, unfortunately, there's just no one in the trans community who has that kind of name recognition and acting experience as Jeffrey Tambor. But it's a catch-22 because we never get allowed to get the experience. So... How are we going to do it unless we the just theater, do it ourselves? The theater, the yeah. theater. Well, and, and it's very easy to produce your own now. Everyone, you know, there's a there's a wide open web and there's a wide open ability to to do that kind of thing. So hopefully we'll see more of that. Well, it's nice though that they are using trans actresses on Transparent. Yeah. Alexandra Billings is wonderful in that. Yeah, and they just hired a trans writer, Our Lady J, whose song I believe you're going to end with tonight. In the show with her song, because I had read. The, the writer on uh, Transparent was also a singer, and I thought, oh, yeah, Slash. And then I listened to her song, and I was like, no, it's not Slash. She's amazing. Yeah, she's one of the most talented musicians I know personally. She's just remarkable, and I'm so glad that she had such a great year last year, and I'm looking forward to what she does on Transparent. You know, we have a lot of, not a lot of, but we're, we're getting a, a, a larger population of trans women out there in the performing arts. Since, it, since it's post-Golden Globe days, and we're here in Los Angeles, we'll talk about that. Um, but we're not seeing, uh, and there's no parody here with trans male actors. Do you have any thoughts on that? Well, I wrote a piece for The Atlantic uh, about two months ago about uh, Elle Fanning is playing a trans guy in a new movie coming up um, called Three Generations. Mm-hmm. And I spoke with Ian Harvey, who's in Transparent, because I feel like that's the most historically significant. Very huge trans guy role that has happened in in recent memory you know it's 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 maybe ever you know someone would say linda hunt in um the year of living dangerously (laughs) because you you know there were there was some fluidity to um her character's gender Mm -hmm. um i mean i I thought she was playing a male did you or thought on that well I don't. I'm not sure. I feel uh, qualified to talk about that. Okay. But in, but in terms of uh, you know Ian's case, he's really making people realize that this invisibility problem is a major thing. You know, we were talking yeah. about bisexuality being invisible. Right. Trans men are so much more uh, invisible in the media. Peter Cage has been really good with that on um, the Fosters because besides Ian playing love interest to one of the characters, there was also another trans actor. Right, Tom Phelan yeah. is a is a trans actor on so it's Foster. It's baby steps at, yeah, at this yeah, point. But why is it? Why why are we seeing more trans women than trans men? I think that it's because it's more taboo to be a trans woman. Okay. I think that uh, that there's this notion of punishing the feminine, and so um, anybody who wants to move towards that, it's like, oh, that's that's crazy, you know that. The hierarchy is set and you're moving the quote-unquote wrong direction. Mm -hmm. And I think more trans men tend to 
blend in a little better. Do you think so, they fly more under the radar? They I do. pass. I do. And is it is it just some, I'm going to be I'm going to be incredibly ignorant and and mainstream here? Is it because you know many trans women are quite tall for their? That's true. And you know there's there's been medical gender? studies that show that trans women are often slightly taller than uh, than non-trans men. So mm-hmm. um, you know there's. I think that's a big part of it is that trans men have passing privilege and there just has been no upside to being out and proud because it's, you know, trans women who've done it have lost jobs, you know, and faced all kinds of discrimination. They saw that and they, you know, but things have really changed in the last few years. You know, some people made great headway in the 90s and now there's there's enough of us that I think we've reached critical mass. But we have, you know, there's still... There is, and we were talking early before we went on the air. We have a lot of, I want to st- I start off with the word ignorance, but maybe even, you know, fear or, or nervousness about the T and LGBTQ uh, among our community. And I'm speaking to our community out there who are listening. Um, what do we not know about being trans, whether, and, and, and the, the many aspects of being trans and the, and the many tr- areas in the trans spectrum? What do we need to know? Well, I think one of the reasons that people have felt a little threatened uh, in the LGBT community by trans issues is because gays and lesbians spent so much time carving out a community and and, and an identity that was separate from the straight world and that uh, trans issues kind of blur and blend some of that. And so I think in some ways it's that spectrum thing that we were talking about with sexuality is the same with gender. Like I'm not, you, you mentioned the word cisgender. I'm, I'm not a big fan of the word cisgender. And I was, I was schooled on cisgender. I interviewed Jacob Anderson Mitchell and, and his wife, Diane, mm-hmm. and I was schooled at cisgender and it's not transvestite, it's cross-dresser. And so it's getting hard to juggle all the terms right. and have used the right term with the right person. My right. favorite term has been cishet. Uh-huh. Which is uh, an abbreviation for cisgender heterosexual. But yes, I want to hear more about why you're not a fan of the term cisgender. The reason I'm not a big fan of the term cisgender is that it creates another binary where I think that Mm -hmm. there's actually another spectrum. That the difference between trans and non-trans is a blurred spectrum just like anything else. And there's a lot of trans people who, for whatever reason, identify as trans but can't express that. And so gender identity and expression are not necessarily linked up. Yeah. And so I'm worried that we're starting to create sort of an elitism of, oh, you're not trans because you haven't done this or that or you don't look like this or like that. Like how trans are you? Right. You know, there's right. there's people who don't think drag queens or cross dressers or people that embarrass them should be considered trans. And I think that's an elitist impulse. Mm. We only have a couple more minutes and I really wanted to get on the uh, topic of Leela Accord and everything that's happened in the community in the country since then. Well, I, I think uh, that terrible tragedy is probably going to be sort of a Matthew Shepard moment for our community. It's it's really going to galvanize people and make people really start to think about what we still need to do. You know, last year was such a great year in the media that it's easy to forget that there's still so many people struggling, especially young people, um, you know, in the same way that you come out as gay or lesbian much younger than you used to. It's now happening where most people who are transitioning or coming out as trans are doing it as minors. And that raises a whole host of legal and ethical issues that really are complicated, especially if you don't have parental support. Right. 
And because there's, you know, we're, we're talking about medical, and, uh, and that's where it gets all. Yeah. This all. morning, um, Zoe Tour, the helicopter pilot, was on Good Morning LA and mm-hmm. stated a statistic I didn't even realize that among gender dysphoria people, the suicide rate is as high as 42%. Yeah, I think uh, 41, 42% have uh, considered suicide. And that's, you know, that needs to change too. And so I'm hoping that Leela's terrible tragedy will raise some awareness around that. And you have a website people can get more information about you and your work. Yeah, you can come over to andreajames.com, learn mm. about what I'm doing. You can go to imatifa.org to look up uh, trans youth. And uh, yeah. Amazing. Well, that's the end of our ride. Gather your personal courage, take Tim Politico's by the hand, and exit to the far left of the trams. Forward motion. And thank you so much, Andrea. A reminder to the listeners out there, we're holding our annual six-week radio workshop at KPFK on Saturday morning starting February 7th. So if you're interested in volunteering for IMRU, email Steve Pride at steve at imruradio.org. And if something I'm going, well, I want to contribute time, but I'm not sure if we're going on the air. We need all sorts of folks to help with this on the website, with social media, publicity, even organizing our 40 years of recordings. Thanks tonight to tonight's director, Wenzel Jones, our social media maven and favorite ginger, Ian McKinnon. Thanks to coordinating producer, Steve Pride, and our Rainbow Minute producers, Judd Proctor and Brian Burns. Comments or story suggestions, tweet us at IMRU Radio or follow us on Facebook and like us, please, and email us, IMRU Radio at IMRU Radio.org. We have like 40 new Facebook friends this week. Yay! Wow. We'll have to figure out what happened this week that made us so popular and try to repeat it next week. I think it's you. (laughs) the nudity. I think it's the nudity we start doing every show. Right. IMRU is posted to the IMRU Radio Facebook page by noon every Tuesday. While you're there, give us a like. Coming up next, flip the script, and we close with elegance from, as we spoke about her earlier, Our Lady J. Good night, everybody. Good night. Here lies a girl who swallowed her sharpie sauce just to show you that she Nothing to you And the soft of her breast And the sweet of her song Meant nothing to you What else was she to do? She said I stand for elegance I live for elegance I breathe for elegance I'll die for elegance A girl who held her head up high 